Hello everyone, welcome to episode 15 of Time and on Sausages, the football podcast up to a point. My name's Kevin Boris, I'm joined as ever by Paul Finney. Paul, are you there? Yeah. I am here, thank you very much for asking Kevin, you're looking splendid. Thank you, well yes, I've not had a haircut since January, so I'm making the most of being 52 and having a full head of hair. That's not in any way, shape or form a dig at you or our guests, but I'm just, you know, <laughs> I've, got other, I've got other things that go against me, but, but hair is one thing I've, I've, I've got. Anyway, so, um, you may wonder what we spent, when there was no football, we did about eight episodes, and then football came back and we stopped, partly because, obviously, my team didn't come back because we were in League One, and thanks to um, points per game, uh, we stayed up by about one point, or 1.08 points. Sorry, Tranmere, do feel sorry for you, but at the same time, not. Um, and then QPR, you didn't come back in great form, Paul, let's be fair. Shade. It was, wasn't it? Thank you. Sorry, listeners. But it was... If you're offended by any language you may have heard, you hear that on Sky all the time now. Yeah, no, don't. You sound like Sky, <laughs> don't you? Like, so, so, you can hear no, we, swear, we, we, we came back really cold and <clears throat> undercooked, as they say, and then um, we, we, we did what we should have done against West Brom, which has played really well, and at the same time almost did Brentford a massive favour, but luckily they blew it, so that was quite handy. Yeah, so as, as, as a QPR <laughs> fan, that Brentford-Fulham playoff final must have been a game where you wanted them both to lose well yeah I mean it, it was, it's bad enough that Chelsea got in the FA Cup final but the whole weekend at Wembley would have been a nightmare for any QPR fan living there Brentford Fulham and Chelsea on the same weekend so I suppose the only good thing there was no, no one there but yeah it was can't believe Brentford blew it because they're probably the best side without a shadow of a doubt in the, in the championship all season and the way they've done things you have to admire them but as they absolutely they're so petty with us you know We'll get to our guests to say, well, when we play them, they won't put our proper name on the tickets. It's like Queen Park Ranger or LBQP Rangers. <laughs> yeah. um, the announcer sort of describes us as that lot from Shepherd's Bush. You know, I'd rather he said White City, but I don't want to be pedantic. Um, and things like that. There. So they've got this real rivalry with us, and Fulham are just way too posh for anything. And, and they should be allowed to premiership with clappers. But, you know. No, I'm hoping that, that's not allowed. I'm, I'm doing hoping that clappers are not. They're, I've been they, there so they many times. It's embarrassing. It's like, it's, it's the most embarrassing thing. It's almost as bad as when kids watch matches for their mobile phones. It just should be banned. It's just ridiculous. And yeah, it's, um, yeah. I think they've got posher fans in Wimbledon, actually, Kevin. Yes, they have, definitely. We've, we've got, I think, I think we're kind of probably the most middle class, but we've got, we're kind of like, um, very consistently middle class. <laughs> I quite like that. But the inconsistent thing about our club is our middle-class fan base. Anyway, and of course, we, we have signed a new player. We signed Ollie Palmer from Crawley uh, last week, whose dad was Prince Charles's security officer for several years. So I quite like the fact that that's the most, most middle-class thing you could ever do. Isn't it? I, wonder if, I wonder if he went to Pizza Express as well. Oh, he might have done, might not he? That was Prince hmm. Andrew, wasn't it? I know, but, you, but no, 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 no. But it's just, it's, if we're going to take the Mickey out of the royal family, what well, would be accurate? Anyway, let's <laughs> talk about other, other things other than football. So we are joined by a guest you may have heard him laugh earlier on, and we're joined by Anwar Udin, the former Barnet and um, Dagenham Redbridge defender, who is now the uh, diversity and campaigns manager for the Football Support Association. Anwar, thanks for your time. No problem. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Yep. Well, I'm, I'm actually I'm, speaking to you, Anwar, from beautiful Barnet, believe it or not, but there you go. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's not a fair is it? No. <clears throat> so we'll talk oh, about... Oh, but they tried to actually call it Barnet once. Do you know that? They actually tried <laughs> to change it. Really? <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, uh, didn't work. Carry no. on. Sorry, Kevin. I didn't, I, I'm, so, um, Anwar was, on a, um, was one of the guests on a, a webinar I chaired uh, two weeks ago now. Um, 
where we looked at um, the as Notice Wimbledon fan, a group of fans have launched a manifesto to move the club forward. There was 10 points, and we were looking at the point of sort of cultural diversity in football and the community aspect of football. And while obviously doing what you're doing as a, as a job now was a really good guess. But also the fact that you, know, if you come from a, you know, a, a Bengali background, and we were talking about how on earth you're still the only British agent to captain a professional football team in, in England. How is that possible? You know what, it is crazy. Um, some of the things I, I do, people still remind me that it's a first. So when in 97, uh, God, all those years ago, when I signed a Premier League contract at West Ham, I was the first British Asian player to do so. And there was a big uh, sort of press conference. And I remember someone from the Evening Standard asked Harry Redknapp about, you know, Asian players, the lack of Asian players. And he asked me the question, and why I answered the question, you know, why, why is there such a lack of? And it is amazing that 20 years later, I'm still asked exactly the same question. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so it is a little bit scary considering we have a huge population of, uh, of British Asian communities all around the country. Um, not only do we have a, a huge population of British Asian co- uh, communities, they love football. I mean, you've only got to go to anywhere, your local parks, there's leagues, there's lads playing. So it doesn't all add up. <laughs> um, but having said that, listen, very proud to, to be the first, very proud to have lifted a trophy at Wembley, captain of the football club, and obviously now as my role as assistant manager at Aldershot, you know, the highest-ranking British Asian coach and manager. I'm proud, but it does worry me that there are not more like me. Um, and you know what? It's hard being a top football player. Listen, being at elite level now, we're not. You know, when I was a kid, it was like, right, you've got to be the best in London, the best in South England, to, to maybe play for West Ham yeah. or Wimbledon. It's a global market now. You know, you've got to be the best in the world because even in the championship in the Premier League, they can pluck, you know, young lads out from all over the world. So it, it, it is tough, but that doesn't, for me, make any excuses why we don't see more British Asians in lower leagues, in non-leagues, as referees, coaches, that sort of stuff. There's no excuse for that. Um, so, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a lot of factors that I think contribute towards that. Um, and hopefully, yeah, we'll see some positive changes. But I've been saying that for 20 years, so I won't hold my breath. But is it lack of encouragement then? Because you look, you look at going down the list and say to Kent League, you've actually got, into, or you know, using that as an example, there is a te- there's an, an Asian only team. So there's there's enough players because they they've got teams from the under sixes all the way to adults and two adult teams and female teams. So how are they saying that there's no one good enough? That, that can't be the case. Is it lack of encouragement, like a familial thing where you're go from a white background or a black background and you're aesthetically minded, maybe you'll be pushed towards, you know, well, you're really good at this, let's, let's get you there. Is, an Asian, is it an Asian cultural thing? That's not being a, a thing to be encouraged as a kid? Well, I think there are you know, Asian teams now. And I, think that, I think sometimes they can be, they're great because they give everyone a platform. But what's happened is a lot of the Asian community have been so kind of disillusioned with how the professional setup is organised. They just thought, well, we'll start our own team. You know, we'll start our own leagues. Yeah. I think long term, it's actually counterproductive because, you know, you're playing at a certain standard, at a certain level. And if anyone wants to sort of be the best, you have to come out of that bubble. Um, but, you know, from my own perspective, I mean, I remember saying to my dad, I want to be a football player. And he said, son, you do not want to do that. Number one, no one's ever done that who looks like you. And number two, every time I've stepped near a football pitch, near a football match, uh, and even working uh, at Green Street on match days, all I've ever done is, is get racially abused and beaten up. Mm. So it was almost something he was like trying to pull me <laughs> yeah. away from. Uh-huh. Um, you know, but I watched the uh, Italian 90 as a kid 
Pavarotti and Scalacci and Gary Lineker and Gascoigne, I fell in love with the game. I'm like, no, this is for me. This is, this is what I want to do. I have my own family telling me, you're never going to do it. You shouldn't do it. And it's not safe. So, I mean, that may answer some of your questions in regards to that yeah. community, community <clears throat> aspect. And actually, my parents were like, look, you know, get your head down, maybe be a, you know, pick a profession um, and, and do something that's a, a viable career to something that's actually something you can do. Because if you put all the effort into becoming a pro in your training, what's the chance of you actually doing that? It's like 0.001. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that was my perspective. And I still, I know that goes on now. It still, still goes on. Um, <laughs> So again, another factor in a series of, of contributing factors as to why I'm probably there is a lack of. Yeah, but also it's down, it's down the attitude as well. I mean, at a different level, I go to football with um, an Asian female, British Asian, sorry, and an American Asian. And our fans, because they know both know Rahul and Cindy, they're grand. It's like there's never a hassle. But when, sometimes you go to away places and, that, and you talk to other fans, they kind of think they probably know more about cricket which is totally bizarre because the QPR fans season tickets home and away, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, we'll be like, oh, how'd you find a day game of the So, uh, how's uh, Pakistan doing or India doing the old cricket? They're like, uh, what? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And it's, it's, and, it, and it's still, there's a wee bit of an incident. We went into a pub once and we just looked at us and I thought that, was, and this is 2020. And that really was a bit scary. I felt it myself. I could feel the tension. And it's, you're just going to a flipping football match. So I do wonder if, there is still that, I don't want to say because I, I know most clubs are welcoming, but I just wonder if Asian people are a bit wary of going to football because they may feel they're going to get picked on. To be honest, I think, I think there definitely is. And, and the reason I say that, and I'm not saying it in a negative way because it just is what it is and it is 2020. And I know, I know the majority of fans, the huge majority of fans are unbelievable, they're welcoming. <laughs> and ultimately, if you're a Wimbledon fan, you're a Wimbledon fan, you're one of us. But even for me, I've played football for 17 years at every level. Mm. Uh, when I joined the FSA, I started to go and watch England home and away. Um, as part of the job, I wanted to really get involved in what the FSA do, uh, looking after England fans abroad. I started going to watch domestic matches, home and away at different levels. And, and just being on the terraces sometimes, England away, like in Lithuania, Estonia or Spain, like I was probably one of the only, if not the only, non-white face. And, you know, with the job, you're in bars, you're walking around the streets making sure England fans are, are okay and everything's fine. And some of the stuff I heard and some of the, you know, kind of um, songs and, and just sometimes, as you as you mentioned, it's that little bit of a feeling. It's that kind of, you know, you walk into somewhere, you, you know, people are looking at you and they're not quite sure. And it, it's hard to describe, but it is that feeling. And uh, there is a touch of animosity, but it's it's great that over the years, and that was five years ago, there's, there's now more sort of, the AME fans watching England away, for example, but it happens. It happens, and um, and that's why I do the role I do. So I, I started a campaign called Fans for Diversity, uh, which the FSA run, and it's all about making football as inclusive as possible, and ultimately trying to bring together fans, the football club, and the community because they're almost like three separate entities. Right. Actually, they're all part of the same thing. So it, it's kind of going up and down the country, working with clubs, fans, community members to say, you know. Rather than support a Premier League side that's 150,000 miles away, you know, look at your local side. You know, what, one that's around the corner because they could because they could benefit from your from your support, your help, and your you know your finances. Yeah, uh, spare points. A, you talk about the England fans. Paul and I both know. You probably know as well. Billy Grant, the Brentford fan. Yeah, Billy. I know Bill. Yeah. I'm sure everyone knows Billy. Um, <laughs> I think I'll avoid him for a while. I might not ring him for about a week or so, but yes. Yeah, what, just hang on before you close. Paul. Um, <laughs> 
we were so I was talking to him when we did a talk sport show together and he was talking about his um he he went to the World Cup in Russia. Um and he he did a diary because he was interested in doing a, a diary about the World Cup, lovely. But he's a lot of he was amazed by the amount of people in Russia in different cities that would just come up to him and just like touch him <laughs> and ask it he's like, Why? He, he said he's shit to begin with, he was like Okay. I'm an England fan. I'm wearing a nice hat. Maybe that's what it is. And then you start to realize, oh, hang on a minute. So they were asking him questions about being black and stuff. And he's like, oh, well, okay. He's, he's, he hasn't answered those questions in like 30 years. But there's, there's, he said it was, it was weird, but it wasn't aggressive or worrying. It was just people in Nizhny Novgorod who've not seen a black person before. It was kind of a strange thing to do in that point, 2018, to have to explain. Yeah. But he said it was actually, it was all right, but it's just very strange. But it's, that must be a very odd thing for, for Paul and I to be white people at football. It's just, you know, we're surrounded by people that look exactly like us. It must be difficult if you're Asian or if you're you know, Korean or you're from, if you're African. It's to, to feel that you stand out in a crowd of 50,000 people must be a very odd, disconcerting feeling. Yeah, I mean, it's, I used to do uh, sort of anti-racism workshops to show racing the red card, and I'd go into schools and stuff. And uh, sometimes like, a very simple analogy was to say, right, if we did like a a sort of an exchange and you went to a school in like Botswana and one of you mm-hmm. went into a, a school for the day and you were the only white uh-huh. person in that school, people would be looking at you. And, and then when you sort of say, say that to someone, it's almost like, okay. And they walk in, think, thinking about themselves, walking into like classrooms, everyone looking and looking at what they do, what they do. And, uh, you know, they go, okay, I can't, I can't understand it. But going back to like football, uh, we spoke on the show last a couple of weeks ago about the Bangla Bantams. Like this yeah. was something that, that I, I just couldn't understand. So as a British Asian myself, played for Barnet and uh, Dagenham in League Two and League One for a six-year period of Bradford in the same league as us. And when I went to Bradford, the city, I mean, around the stadium is about a two-mile radius, 95% Bangladeshi. Literally, it's its crazy. It's like there's pockets of Luton, um, Birmingham, uh, West Ham, for example, Upton Park. And when I played at Bradford, it was crazy because I thought, surely... It's 14,000 fans in this stadium, which is great for, for a yeah. lower league club. Uh, t- tickets are actually quite affordable as well. And literally, when there was a corner or a throw, I'd literally look around the stadium for an Asian face because I thought, listen, I'm no Lionel Messi, but if there's a British Asian player playing in the stadium yeah. that you live across the road from, maybe that would be a reason to go, you know what, kids, you love football. Come and see this Asian lad who plays for centre half of Barnet, right? Um, he's a bit slow, but he can tackle and head. Come and watch him. <laughs> uh, and and it, never, it never happened. And uh, when, I, when I got this role, Bradford was one of the first places I went to. And it, and it was great that the club were honest. They were like, and what? It's a luxury issue for us because we are struggling. We have a skeleton staff. We just need to try and make sure the facilities are up to scratch. Staying in the division is financially viable. And I said, OK, can I help? And they were like, listen, crack on, do what you want. And um, there was a game the next day, and I, I, I will never forget this. I went into a community centre across the road from the stadium, literally across the road from the stadium. From nine to one, there was 200 young Asian boys and girls playing football. Just before they finished, I walked outside. And I was about to go into the stadium. There was these kids, these Asian kids, jumpers for goalposts, playing, laughing. I was thinking, this is amazing. The minute the football fans arrived, they all went indoors. Football fans came in, <clears> went into the stadium. They came back out. I went in and watched the game. Just before the end of the game, I came out. They're still playing. And then like clockwork, they went in, fans came out. And I just asked the community members and, and the lads in the communities, and I said, what's all that about? And they said, Amwar, we just keep ourselves to ourselves. There's a major disconnect because we've had bricks through our window. We've had racist abuse. We've had so many incidents over the years. 
And I said, okay, but what about now? Surely that's, that's different. And they said, look, the away stand is right by this community center. And they said, and what, every year we still hear once or twice Asian uh, racist songs on the terraces. So we just kind of think, you know what, let's respect what it is. We have, we, we have our space, they have their space. And for me, that's criminal. Because going back to that original discussion that we were having around lack of Asians, lack of why, why, that, this is one of the reasons why. And what I try to say to the communities nowadays is that, yes, there still is an element, there still is a minority, and I think we have to be honest and aware of that. But the majority of football fans want football to be a welcoming place and will actually do whatever they can to make sure that happens. So that particular example of Bradford, what we did was I contacted all the supporter groups at the club and I said, look, can we do a buddy system once a month? I'll get the community. I don't want to give them free tickets. I don't want to just send them into a bit of the stand on a cold Tuesday night and say, yeah, have a watch at a Bradford Rochdale on a Tuesday night. No. Meet them, walk into the stadium together, talk to them about your best player, why is the best player, talk to them about the context of this game. And um, they started doing that. I did a stadium tour. We talked about the Bradford fire, which, by the way, in Bradford, the Bradford fire was a, was a tragedy. But the Asian community actually saved so many lives on that particular day because they lived around the stadium. Yeah, yeah. And this is what I'm saying. There's already a crazy link here. And I'm thinking, well, you know, you've literally saved the lives of football fans of this club and Lincoln uh, yeah. that were playing on that particular day. But yet you have nothing to do with, with the football club. So one month turned into twice a month. That turned into, can we go uh, every to the next game. Of course you can. They decided to start a support group called Bangla Bantam. It's five years later, uh, 600 members, 200 season ticket holders. They've even got women with hijabs singing Bradford songs. Um, and it's, it's unbelievable. And I get, whenever, whenever I get a chance, I go up and watch. And it's amazing because the last time I watched, talking about Rochdale, they played Rochdale and Rochdale played in purple. And I was sitting with one of the aunties and Rochdale scored. And she got up and screamed. And I was like, no, 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 no. That's Rochdale. And she was like, oh, but she was like, it was her first game. It was her first ever game. But she was so excited about <laughs> magnitude of people there, yeah. all these people singing. And the fact that she could see her house, she could see her house from the terraces. <clears> she was buzzing. And I was like, no. And I thought to myself, you know what? Here's me just saying to this old lady, come along, come watch a football yeah. match. I've not even told her what bloody colour Bradford yeah. City is, <clears> what, what direction they're kicking off in, <laughs> you know, that sort of stuff. And I was like, yeah. but then after that, she goes every week now. And, 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 and sometimes I think as football fans, we actually take that for granted. If I, yeah. said, to someone, if I said to someone, look, don't watch an ice hockey match, and they sit there for the first time, uh, even for me, I'll be like, well, I don't really know what's going on. Why are they fighting? Or what's, what's happened in here? So I think sometimes if we want the community to get involved, we can't just go open the door, there you go. We've got to give them a bit of context. Yeah. Why did we fall in love with football? You know, what, what was yeah. it for us? Was it a family thing? Was it a particular moment? Was it a particular story? Was it, there's always something, isn't it? And I think, you know, in life, you can't expect someone to go, well, stop supporting Liverpool because they're all up there and you know, your mm. local club is this. Support this. Well, why am I going to do that? Um, and I think it's about manipulating that relationship. And <clears> like yeah. I said, that community can see that stadium from their bedroom windows. Uh-huh. And then once they've got that bond, once that bridge is built, magical things you know, happen. And, and like I said, uh, the Bangla Bantams are one of maybe 50 new groups that we've, uh, we've created through the Fans for Diversity campaign. The trouble, the trouble is, Anwar, I mean, we had Sash Raymond many, many years ago, as you know. Um, yeah, he played and, for Bradford. Yeah, and he played for Rangers. Um, but he was at the time where the, where the club wasn't, you know, just a bad men and we weren't very good at everything else. But we, the club were working really hard with him then and we're still working hard. And it's, I don't want to patronise a community because I don't think that's fair on them. And I don't want to say, oh, come, you know, but we've got to, we should, we should have more diversity in all football grounds, not just QPR, Wimbledon, uh, Sheffield, anything, and 
it'd be a great time when we actually feel that people just come to watch the beautiful game, not because we're having to coax them in the grounds, but until that happens, we've got to do the best we can to get everyone yeah. in there, you know, and, and make them feel as welcome. But I think that story is mm. absolutely brilliant. But I'd have liked to see that in the local media. I'd like to see that in um, Football Focus. And what I'd like to see mm. that on Sky. I'd like to see it. You know, why isn't it being picked up on? Because that is an absolutely fantastic story. Yeah, and in I this mean, day and age... It's, it's, it's true. I mean, the Bang Bangabatams, to be fair, they've been on the one show. Uh, they've, they've had a few documentaries that I have kind of done and then other kind of small fanzines and podcasts have picked <laughs> up on. But you are 100% right. And you know what? Something that, I kind of, that demoralizes me a little bit, I have to say, is for 20 years, I feel really passionate about this stuff because it's, I've lived it. It's not something, mm, it's a job. Yeah. It's, not, it's not a job for me. I've lived it. You know, my, my father and me, and I've experienced enough with children now. I want the future to be better. But I almost do believe that almost like with the media and stuff, positivity is not really something that sells and it's not something that they're really interested in. And for me, I think there needs to be a balance. Yes, because the thing is, I'm trying to tell people that, you know what, by and large, football fans are all right. They're decent. They're good lads. Mm. They're good women. They're, you know, you can go and be social with them. You can go to, even if you don't drink, you can go to a pub and it's safe. Mm. But then if all you see and hear in the newspapers and the news is that they're hooligans and this is happening, they're going to go, listen, you're only saying <clears> it's <throat> your job. It's your job to get more people into football because I've just seen a documentary. I've seen a news piece that says, you know, someone's gone over there and smashed the town up or someone's been racist to Raheem Sterling. And I'm thinking, okay, well, let's not, let's not like, let's, let's acknowledge that because that has happened and that is wrong. And we're dealing with that. But what about all the unbelievable stories? I mean, your particular clubs, for example, I know some uh, fans at QPR that do ridiculous things for mental health for other charities. There's like walks and uh, there's, there's, there's loads of unbelievable things that they do, not for themselves, for other people. But you will never, un, other than the club's foundation or the club's website and maybe a, a Twitter, um, a little bit of Twitter, social media reach, don't really go far, does it? But for me, I think those stories need to because we need to create a balance so that if someone's sitting there thinking, should I go and watch a football match? But all I've heard about football fans are that they're, they're complete nutters. <laughs> yeah. But if I heard a few stories about look at this club doing this and look at how well they've done this and look at what they're doing there. I'd be like, you know, I'd be more inclined to maybe go and buy a ticket to go and watch because that's a really cool story. And sometimes, as we know, yeah. sometimes the football is actually secondary. It's yeah. about that social aspect. It's about feeling part of something, doing something with someone. That, that, that for me, is massive. And one thing about COVID-19 that's, that I've been really, really surprised by is the amount of football fans that have just been on the phone to me just chatting about football because take football away and there's a massive void in their life. Yeah. Some people need football more than we realise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, it's again, a lot of things where you've realised when you have WhatsApp groups or groups of friends that football is the only thing you have in common with them. You might be political dis- beliefs completely different, religious beliefs are different, different music, different whatever. You might have voted you know, completely different ways in elections. But the football team, you supporting that football team is the one thing you have in common with them. And when that's not there, which we haven't as a you know, League One and League Two, we've not had that for five months. It's really interesting to think, God, I've got nothing in common with this person. I don't agree with anything. It's, 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 hard. it's hard to think, well, how do I know? I wouldn't know this person if I didn't have football. But that's, that's what football does. Or sport, I mean, sport is not just football does. What I was going to say, another point I was going to make was, you're talking about football clubs should, in inverted commas, reflect the community that they're in. So it's amazing, isn't it, that if you're looking at, again, you mentioned Bradford, or looking at Luton, where there's very few, if no, no Asian kids in their academies. How, and how is that possible? But you look at someone like, yeah, let's, let's pick a club, Plymouth. 
it's unlikely there'll be many Asian or black kids in their academies because if they're going from the local area, that's a largely white area, let's say. But you look at Crystal Palace, they're under 18s from two seasons ago. I think nine of starting 11 were black, which is, reflects perfectly the area they're from. So is it easier for some, com- some clubs in those, communi- in those football kind of centric communities to go out into the community and, and find local kids who are willing to play? I'm not saying it's easy for Crystal Palace, but they're in a, an area where there's a lot of black people in that area. It's, it's a fact. It's, I, I live there, so it's, it's, it's fine. It's Thornton Heath is a predominantly black area. And so the kids play for Crystal Palace. It's, there's, there's a disconnect somewhere. It's not just Bradford. They're looking at Luton, is it maybe in Birmingham and other groups in, say, New Malden. So Wimbledon oh, have been in New Malden for 18 years. That's the biggest um, agglomeration, if you like, of South Koreans outside of South Korea or San Francisco, living in New Malden area. And we've got no Korean players in our academy. We had a South Korean com- food company sponsor our stand. We had a lot of reaching out to the South Korean community weren't particularly interested, but that's fine. We've done that. The club did that. They made the effort. Wasn't much coming back. That's fine. So is, there, is there more that clubs can do to reach out to their own? I think, I think, there's, I think, I think there is always more that we can do. <coughs> um, you know, I don't want to criticise football clubs because some clubs do amazing things. And, and I think every, yeah. every single thing we talk about when we talk about these sort of things, it has to be reciprocal. I think that's important because, listen, we want people to come into the stadiums, but if they don't yeah. want to come, they don't want to come. We don't want to force anyone to do no, anything. No. And I think, with this sort of work, for me, it's having that kind of mid-term, long-term uh, mindset. So, you know what? We might not, you know, we could do something AFC with, with some of these communities, for example. And it might not bear fruit till two, three years down the line. But if you do, if you do nothing, you're going to continue to get this, the same results. Yeah. This is what, you know, one of my things about West Ham was all those years ago was, you know, I was a West Ham United player. I went there from the age of 13 all the way to 21. And, you know, if you started really really doing some commu- strong community work, that move to Stratford would have been so, it would have been unbelievable because you've gone closer to the uh, Asian community and there's, a, there's a, actually a, a dialogue, a connection. But what's happened in East London, for example, the club did try, but tickets are all sold out. So there was their own Asian leagues, their own Asian uh, teams, and there was a little bit of a disconnect. So I think sometimes it's about not worrying about the, the, the effects of straight away. It's about... Let's, let's plant a seed and let's see how it grows. And ultimately, it's building those bridges. And I think once people realise and they buy into what a club is, the romance of you know, the story of that club, those that enjoy it and those that like football will, will, will become fans. And again, you know, that, that's the future because let's face it, with lots of clubs around the country, if you just said, right, their existing fan base is going to be their existing fan base, there are lots of clubs where their fans now moved out to um, areas of, of, of the country that are sort of outside of London. For example, you could look at Millwall fans, Charlton fans, a lot of them jump on a train to come into London. Mm-hmm. So you've got to start thinking about, well, what's our local demographic? Because in 20 years' time, our fan base, if we don't do anything, will probably uh, diminish slightly. So we do have to engage and keep thinking about what the club does moving forward. I mean, it's quite, it's quite bizarre because let's say a person I go to football with Cindy um, who's a British season her connection with QPR is that her granddad built the first Sikh temple in London in Shepherd's Bush and to, to get and you know it, all this thing about people don't get involved with the communities they do but it's just you've got to and I'm sure she's seen some stuff and heard stuff that might have put a lesser person off but if you haven't met this woman you will not know the, 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 the dynamic of her is that she would just ignore it and carry on anyway and I think that's what 
clubs have got to do it. I'd like to think we're welcome because our, our board is very, very mixed. Thank <laughs> God our coaching staff is incredibly mixed. Um, and we want to go forward. But with that, I think that the, the trouble, I think, and I'll be honest with Anwar and, and Kevin, I nearly forgot your name there, Kevin, it's been so long. Good Lord. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm if you go on Twitter and stuff, do you know what I mean, Anwar, and you see all these things, there's a lot of negativity. There's a lot of, well, the BBC are only doing this because that's a woman. The BBC are only doing that because it's an Indian person. But the BBC are only doing that because it's an Asian person. Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost like anyone of colour or female or anything that's good at the job, done really well, it's because the people are ticking boxes. And that attitude's got to stop at some point as well because that really annoys me. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Listen, uh, you know, I've always believed in a meritocracy myself. And when people started to say to me, you know, well, no, you know, or yes, you're, you're the Asian thing. And for me, it's about, right, I need to be the best I can be. But yeah. having said that, you know, one of the things that, you know, a lot of people say to me, what does it take to be a Premier League or a, a football player at any level? Yes, you have to have the ability on the pitch. Yes, you need the attitude. But you know what? You need a little bit of thick skin and character as well. Because you're going to see things. You're going to hear things. People are going to be negative towards you as a person, you as a player. I mean, I've been in stadiums where I've had like the whole stadiums giving me abuse. Um, not so much around my race, but just about me as a player, as an away fan. So they're taking away the whole uh, like equality angle. But my point is like, you've got to be able to go, okay, yeah, all right, what? You know, I'm slow, I'm fat, whatever. That's what football fans do. You've got to be able to take it on the chin. And that's that's what it's all about. But like being in the changing rooms, that's where you might hear the racist banter, the incorrect terminology. And it's, it's, it's disheartening. Oh. You know, you're sitting in a changing room at 17 year old with all these World Cup uh, players and superstars played for England and Premier League players. And some of, you know, you're looking at these pieces of role models and then they come up with jokes that have words in there that you find extremely offensive. And you're sitting there thinking, do you know what I mean? Like this is this is not this is not what I want to do. I've got to think about getting out there and being the best that I can be, and it kind of disheartens you. But ultimately, mm. ultimately, I feel like it's important that people like me, people like Zesh Remen, you have to go through that process to become a role model. And then being around those changing rooms, the older I've got, I start to challenge people. Hang about, listen, it's not really funny. Like find that offensive. Sorry, I'm. A, I didn't understand. I've always said stuff like that. I didn't realise. But until you have people that are challenging. People won't ever know the difference because, you know, literally some people use words that, well, my dad said that, that that's what I've always used. I didn't realise it was actually offensive. Well, no, actually it is offensive. So could you not say that? And had I not said that, mm. some of these people would have used these things all the time. So it's about understanding. It's about having honest conversations. But we have moved forward. I think we are in a place where I think people have an understanding in changing rooms, in the professional environments, where it is a little bit more conducive to difference you know, when I was coming through, it wasn't. But I think we had to have people that you know, yeah. them and, and be those role models and actually be a positive role model. So when someone looks at me, or if I've got a teammate or a manager and they say, have you ever played with an Asian player? They'll go, yeah, I played with Anwar. Great lad. Works hard. You know, I'd have him on my team every single week. So their perception of an Asian player is a positive one and not, oh, yeah, they, they play cricket and they, you know, they want to be doctors. You know, it's 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 it's, it's, back, yeah. it's it's you know smashing those myths, mm-hmm. those stereotypes. And do you that's know what? what I feel like I'm responsible to do. Do you know what? You just reminded me of something. Cause I, it's, sorry, Kevin. This just coming to my head as you're talking. Now, when I used to play school football in Northern Ireland, um, the insults about Catholics were incredibly bad, really bad. And I'm never sure if people say, "Oh, I didn't realize they're offensive." People do know they're offensive, but if no one challenges them. Or says actually, if the shoe was on the other foot and you were hearing this, how would you feel? Yeah. It's that kind of like, you know, it's an, it's an easy excuse because I know damn rightly that everyone I played with 
and we for the Catholic team knew exactly what they were saying to him people and, and got the response that they wanted every single time. And thank God back home football's moved on a million miles from them days, which is basically built along political lines. And I think with racism, it's definitely the same. People do know what's offensive. Not saying what you're saying is that some people don't, but I think most people do. But it, it's a little bit of fun bullying as well, keeping people in their place. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. And oh, I hate I, that. I totally agree. I totally agree. And I think you're right. Because if you said to some, what I used to say to some of the some of the players or some of the people that I had these conversations with, like they'd use a word that I, I said, ah, that's wrong. I said, if you went into a Chinese shop, a takeaway or a Chinese restaurant, would you use that word? Exactly. Uh, uh, nah. Okay. Well, if you were standing in the middle of an Asian wedding, yeah, and your mate took you there, would you use that word? Ah, oh, nah, of course not. Okay. Well, if you were, and then they're looking at me again. Yeah. yeah okay. I get your point. Yeah. So you know what you're saying. <clears throat> you know the uh, the context of the words. You know, you know what it means and why 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 people use it. So don't use it. And you know what? I t- forget racism. I even, like some, just just vulgar language. Sometimes you say to yourself, if you was having a Sunday roast with your family, would you use that? No, nah, my mum would slap me. Well, don't use it then, because you're a public figure, you're a player, you're a, you know, you're a fan. So yeah. don't switch it on and off, because you could be in a restaurant with your mates having a drink, and there's someone there on Twitter going, "Oh, mate, I just, um, I'm, I'm in a pub with, you know, a Wimbledon player, and he's effing and blinding and this and that." <laughs> I think it's really, really important. I think yeah. there's a time and a place for everything. Listen, you know, I'm not, mm. I'm, I'm not the racism police, but I just feel like <laughs> people need to have a little bit more understanding and respect and empathy for others. It's 2020, you know. Uh, you know, we don't live in a world where it's just going to be all one race and all one type of people. Right? This is who we are. This is where we live, and I think it's about time people actually understand it and actually embrace it. I, I'm. I have certain words I hate. I'm a journalist by trade, so I, I like words. The word banter. I hate that word anyway, just regardless of what it what it in sort of you know what it means and all the sort of the you know what banter has come to mean. But people use that word banter to basically sort of gloss over something they've said that's offensive. They might make a racist comment or a religious comment or whatever. And say, oh, that's just banter. No, it's still offensive. Just because you've given it a title doesn't mean it's less offensive, does it? But that, that, that's, that's crept into our language, our syntax these days. Where people will insult, rather than say, I'm really sorry, I didn't mean that. I was just banter. Exactly. What people don't realise as well is that, like, so I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a British Asian, my dad's from Bangladesh, my mum's from England, but if I went into a room and people were having a joke about Jewish people, well, that's what, so just because I'm not Jewish don't mean I'm not going to find that offensive. <laughs> yeah. If you're being offensive to anyone, I still find that offensive because I understand what it feels like, you know, to, to have people yeah, talk yeah. about that to me. And I think people need to understand that as well. It's about, you know, whatever you say, whatever you do, just think of you know think as if everyone is listening everyone is watching and just have an appreciation of the difference which i don't think you know people have done and I, and I think there is still an element of that now and and like you said i think there's a lot of fear involved but it just it just takes me back to that whole that initial thing when we started the podcast about oh so why are there a load of lack of asians i mean can you imagine if you're, you're a young asian lad or a jewish lad or a black lad who's gone into a changing room and there's all these boys that are there and they'll see you as a threat because some do football's a competitive ruthless yeah. horrible environment someone steps into a changing room someone's looking at i've been at left play left back because last six games i've been poor this could be your replacement you know and so you want to be macho you want to show and they could be saying something laughing and joking about something actually that person finds deeply offensive and he's sitting there thinking god do i want to be a part of this environment i've got to go on trial now for an hour you know yeah. and all these sort of things i just think it's about having a little bit of empathy and um 
listen, it's going to be a way, a little bit of work yet, but I think things are improving, but there's still a lot of work we need to do. But having these conversations are so important because that's what, and I think football fans can have a part in this as well. Yeah. A key part in this. So when you, back to your, sorry, Paul, I just thought it was back to your playing days. Were, don't have to name any clubs, but did you, were there chances for you to, let's say, leave Barnet, go to a, a League One club, for example, I'm just using an example, and you thought, I'm not sure I want to go there because of the type of fans they had or you were worried or you'd had abuse at that club as an away player where you, when you went to Dagenham, maybe you, you felt, no, I'm, I'd feel happy there. If you came to Wimbledon, you'd probably feel happy same with QPR. There's a certain club. Did that ever happen where you didn't want to go somewhere purely because of the reaction you had got as a, an opposer? To be, to be fair, with me, no. And I say that because I don't care. Like, literally, I've signed for West Ham. And when I went to Dagenham, Dagenham probably had a, I think, there was an EDL stronghold. There was a yeah. lot of issues around that, that aspect of, of, of Dagenham. I went there, captain that side from the National League to League One. You know, every Dagenham fan would probably speak highly of me because I was there for six years. And we, had, we had six extremely successful years as a, and I was a captain. Yeah. But I remember going there and everyone was like, mate, Dagenham, mate. Be careful, loads of racists are EDL. It was all of that. I went there and every single Dagenham fan that watched me play embraced me as a hero. Um, But that's not saying that, you know, you you don't hear and see things. I remember being at West Ham and I remember when social media started to become a bit more active and people were Facebooking and Twittering and all that sort of stuff. And I remember uh, seeing a few posts around, I hope this player never plays for West Ham, never want to see an Asian player in a uh, West Ham shirt. So when you're a young lad coming through, you see this stuff and you're going like, I don't want to be known as the Asian player. I just want someone to come and say, he's a decent centre-half, he's a good centre-half. That's all I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, you have all of that with you because there is no one like you. Um, But if you you take that to heart, every tweet, every Facebook post, literally I'd be stuck in a room and I won't want to come out. And and you know what? Some people don't have the character that I have. My glass is always half full and I, I understand where I want to go. And it is horrible, and it's, it's it, and, but that's the, that's, the, that's, that's the society we live in. I think like social media is, is something that can be quite poisonous. Um, but like I say, for me, it wouldn't be an issue. Like, in actual fact, I, I'd go to the, you know, what would be notoriously the most racist club. wouldn't be an issue for me because I'm there to play football, and I'm actually there to change hearts and minds. You know, and I loved it. I'd, I'd, I'd be grateful for an opportunity to do that. Do you know what? No, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this, and I, I mean it. I'd be more worried about playing with Tony Roberts than the... Um... Than anything else, if I was a Dagenham, because um, Tony's probably one of the most craziest people I've ever met in my entire life. <laughs> so, if you can captain Tony Roberts, I take my hat off to you. <laughs> to be fair, for six years, um, obviously Tony played behind me for six years, and he, you're right. But what a he's the reason. He's one of the reasons why we had success because you've got characters in your team that don't get me wrong, great football players, <laughs> but they bring so much more to a change of them, so much more to the team, and there's no. There's no wonder why Dagenham fans absolutely love him because, uh, yeah, he's a, he's, a, he's a cannon, as they say. <laughs> he's, more than, he's, he's a good lad, though. But it's good to hear that, that you, you're saying, like, put me in the fire and I'll take it, I'll absorb it and I'll change it. And I think that's brilliant. And I just, it's just, what you, but going back a bit, what you said about the dressing room as well, that, that's more a test of character, no matter what colour you oh, are, no matter what yeah. religion you are, anything else. Because I'd never thought of that until you said that. But of course, if you're a striker and you haven't scored for eight games, and someone else comes along, you're like thinking that. And I never thought of that actual, because you always say players being in it together when we're here to do this, that, and the other. But yeah. Let me tell you one thing about football that people don't see is that it's, you know, when, you, when, you, when you're in that changing room 
and the changing that you know that it's it, it, not in a bad way but you've got the most competitive people the most confident <clears throat> uh, gifted individuals in a room um and, and it's tough you know like for example the best football player at school was the blue-eyed boy it was the popular one and he had it his way you've got 20 of them in one changing room they all yeah. want to be the captain they all want to be the best player but they can't and you throw one individual in there who's on a trial oh, i'm a new lad sometimes that changing room going no we don't fancy him we don't want to be him to be here and these are some of the things that I, I guess fans don't see because obviously you see the product of the week's activity on the pitch but there's so much that goes on behind the scenes that um like i said it's about character and as you said like tony roberts for example like someone like that to have his experience as a player in the changing room like tony's tony's he's a welsh international i think he was and i think he's done yeah. some uh, coaching but even him talking about being a proud Welshman and all of the stuff around England and Wales and stuff like some of our players have never even met anyone from Wales. You know, I was in the squad. You had another lad, Jewish lad, uh, Sam Sloman, who actually come to us from Wimbledon. So you had a team of literally every religion, different backgrounds, but we were in it together. We had a promotion from the National League to League One with a team that literally had the smallest budget in every mm. league we played. Yeah. But there was something about us that coming together. And that just shows it, you know, difference works. But ultimately, it's about being good people. You're good people and it could be a changing room. It can be an office. You could be sitting in your office and there's people that don't talk to you, people that like, use incorrect terminology or there's issues. If you can find a place and can find a, you know, can be a person that sort of, is, is understanding of that. Trust me, you get the best out of everyone. Because I'm just going to Yeah. <clears throat> I was always worried about, not worried about, I thought about that in terms of groups of footballers. You get now more, I guess, in Premiership where you've got the, the French players famously stick together, the Spanish players stick together. I'm sure the, the clubs themselves do as much as they can to integrate them. But I always found it odd with goalkeepers. Because they always say, oh, the goalkeepers, you know, the goalkeepers stick together. So three, the three keepers train together, they're good mates. But one of them's played 100 games in a row. Those who haven't played at all. At some point, one of them players is thinking, please break a finger. I mean, I mean nothing, nothing major, but you, you want to play. You're not gonna, the only reason you're going to play is if that first-choice keeper either gets injured or is an absolute mare, right? So you've got to, you've got to almost wish bad things upon your it's, friends. It's, and it, and it, are it, the it, goalkeepers it, friends? I'm not sure they're friends, are they? The, the, key, the keeper situation is hilarious. I've got a few mates over the years that have literally, if you, if you go to their house unbelievable house that's paid for unbelievable car that's paid for they've played hardly any football their whole life yeah. they've been like a number two or a number three I mean I think it's the Arsenal is it the Arsenal keeper at the moment Martinez, he's the longest yeah. serving player at the club I, yeah. I've hardly ever seen him play but he's decent he's been on loan 20 million times but just getting back to that point you said about French players and stuff really something interesting that I found really interesting when I was at West Ham with Freddie Canute mm-hmm. he's one of the nicest human beings I've ever met by the way but Freddie came, and a lot of people thought he was weird and a bit aloof. Um, but he came during the month of Ramadan, and no one actually understood and uh, realised that so he weren't eating at the calf. His English wasn't great at that point, but a superstar football player, one of the most underrated players I've ever played with. But the lads thought he was a bit weird. He didn't drink, so he didn't really go out on nights out, which is a big thing at West Ham. And I remember one day he came in to me, and I was a young lad at the time uh, in, in the youth team, and they came in and said to me, Anwar, he said, um, I was told you, you could help me find the local mosque. I said, yeah, cool, no worries, uh, Freddie, I'll take you. So I took him to the local mosque, and I, I got to know Freddie really, really well. And then me and Freddie became a little bit closer. And when sort of the lads realised about his religion, the differences in religion, and the why he, didn't, he wasn't eating for that month, and the why he wouldn't go out on social events, all of a sudden it was like, oh, okay, yeah. 
We just thought he was a weirdo. Do you know what I mean? And, and this is a player that came to a club from France on a lot of money and had to deal with this sort of stuff. Whereas yeah. I almost wish that when he, tur- when he almost turned up, like uh, the gaffer sat us down and went, what is this, this is Freddie? By the way, Freddie's Muslim. I mean, it's probably not the best way to introduce someone, but Freddie's Muslim. This month, he might be doing this while it, but this is why. Or, or the physio had that, yeah. those conversations. I think if players understood that and understood the, the, the discipline it takes to not yeah. eat or drink and be a professional player at the Premier League level, I tip my hat to anyone like that because I, yeah. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do that. And, to have, and that's why I have so much respect for players like that. And actually, when the players actually realised, and it was actually me that spoke to a lot of the players about, oh, Freddie's not here, he's fasting. And Freddie, they were like, wow, how does he do that? And he still trained like everyone else every single day. Still played in the Premier League whilst he was fasting. Yeah. And it's just, it's, that's a, it's just a little example of actually just having some open and honest discussions. And the reason, and I said to Freddie, I always remember, <laughs> I said, like, you should be more open. Tell the boys about, you know, and he's like, I'm new. I'm like, he didn't really know anyone that well to kind of just, yeah, hello, this is me. And I, I want to try and fit in and sometimes it can be quite hard. So like I say, sometimes it's just a lack of communication really. And that's why I think if we have these open and honest discussions and, and like diversity and inequality shouldn't be something that we're so sensitive about it. You know what? We might say things wrong. This podcast, I might've said things that might go, people go, but you know, we need to have these conversations. Yeah. We need to have these conversations because if we don't, nothing's going to change and no one's going to learn anything. So I think it's really, really important. Do you know what's really weird as well, Kevin? What you said there about people sticking together. It's something that I've, I was talking to someone once about this, um, funny enough, at an away game. You know, talking about cultures sticking together, certain types of individuals sticking together. I think it's, from my own point of view, when I meet someone from Northern Ireland, regardless of religion or anything like that, you just instantly go, oh, where are you from? Oh, yeah. you know, blah, blah, blah. And you know they've, they've walked the same streets as you. You know they've had the same sort of life as you. So you instantly have the crack you know their mum's going to be similar to your mum the culture's going yeah. to be similar to that. the latest people sticking together it's kind of like in London it's a friendly voice in a friendly t- in a place you may not know that many people as well so I think you're right nail on the head is if a manager would say this is I know Adele's rap Adele has come from France and he may be fasting but don't worry he still won't pass to you um, you know that sort of thing, and and he will do amazing things with the with the ball that I've never seen in my life. But there you go, it's another story. And I think that's a brilliant point: is yeah. just educate people, educate people, so we don't feel so different from each other. Because let's face it, we're not different. We're all the bloody same, whether we like it or not. And um, yeah. you know, and I think that's a, that's a really really good point. And I'm, I'm pleased you raised that on the broadcast because I'd never thought about that. And that yeah. yeah. It made me really think that there's a um, when England won the Cricket World Cup. Sorry, boy, boy, cricket pool. I know it's not your thing. I'm off. I'll be back in ten minutes. I know. So when England won the Cricket World Cup last year, obviously we had two Asian players who had Moe and Ali and um, and Adil Rashid. And then when England won the World Cup, and then the champagne was going everywhere. They show up. You, if you if you watch the footage closely, Owen Morgan shaking out the champagne. Champagne goes everywhere. Moe and and Adil Rashid just run opposite directions, right? <laughs> out of the way of the champagne. So, and then when the champagne sort of calms down, they come back in and start jumping around. But, and, but I'm, I remember on, on, uh, I'm on Twitter, you know, but there's a few cricket Facebook groups I'm, I was part of. But um, what's wrong with them? What? <laughs> there's nothing wrong with them. Well, why, why, would, why did that want to be covered in alcohol? Oh, for Christ's sake, really? You think it's just, you know, I, I just thought, well, surely you would realise that they, they don't drink and can't touch alcohol. They're not allowed to. Oh, but, it's, but they've won the World Cup. Yes, <laughs> but... <laughs> It doesn't mean that's going to change their religion. Oh, okay. You know, you, know, you wouldn't expect... I don't, I don't understand how you can't... That, 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 that there, though, is... A, a, I've had a debate about this with quite a few people, but, you know, man of the match, um, champagne. 
So, yes. for example, like so Mo Salah, I think it was Mo Salah, yeah, who he kept getting this man in a match uh, when whenever it was yeah. on Sky. And um, someone mentioned that, and he kept giving it to other players. And I was yeah. like, why does he keep giving away his match? Of the day? Like, and yeah. then, um, and then what they did was, I think the Premier League did it. They actually gave him a trophy as yes. opposed to a, and that caused a massive stir. With, oh, we've been doing this for a hundred years. Like that's wrong. And and I think there's an argument for both sides actually in terms of the tradition and the symbolic um, sense of this is what we have as this is what we do. And 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 again, most Salah and uh, Muslim players are like, that's cool. We we're fine. You don't have to change anything. But I will give it to another player just simply because I'm not going to drink it. Yeah. So I'm happy if it's a symbol, great, but I'm not going to... So a lot of players spoke to me about that and they said, Amor, we don't want it to be changed. Like, we think it's unbelievable they've changed that because it shows a sign of like, mm. respect and acknowledgement so we can put <clears> that. But if it isn't, it's tradition in this country, so we're happy with that, but I'll just give it to Jordan Henderson or yeah. James Milner. Like, There's nothing... Yeah. Is that okay? Um, but just silly things like that, sometimes, as you said, with the, I remember that literally scene with, with the cricketers mm. it made me laugh. You're right, because people who don't have a people who have no idea would be like, What's going on there? They've won the World Cup and it's almost like they're running into get changed and go home. But yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it's just the simple things and they, and sometimes it's like we miss the details, don't we? Sometimes we just go, Well, what's I guess with, yeah, with the football, you could you could make a trophy in the shape of a champagne bottle that isn't or, a champagne bottle. Or just have the easiest thing, maybe in my opinion, would be to present it as a champagne bottle, but just have a non-alcoholic champagne bottle. I'm sure there's <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, so no one would even know and actually no. most of them could take it home and drink it and, and yeah. no one would be the wiser so is, there's little things around it but I can imagine these conversations people are having is oh what it keeps giving away should we, should we change it we... and actually if they were spoken to the players they yeah. could come up with a solution like that just did get non-alcoholic non, non, non champagne yeah. and get it done. Do, you know, do you know what I've already thought of a solution why don't they give them a donation to the football clubs community departments who need the funding and they can still be money in the match and it can be a community project and you don't have to offend anyone and you're doing a lot of good there you go there you go yeah, so if, so, if an Arsenal player wins man of the match you can get to pick which one of the 55 redundancies you're saving ooh controversial do you know what we should I think we should just drop man of the matches anyway because we never get them when we're playing we should just get awards for having a corner I'd like that and um, a shot and target perhaps or like when we don't get a really bad referee and uh, yeah, and everything else. Because I'm, I'm one of them fans. I know my club isn't great at times, but I like to blame everyone else apart from the club. And I think that's fair enough. But yes, I think it's a good point. Maybe do something to the community, a wee trophy. It doesn't have to be champagne. I think that's just some of this football says this tradition, but come on, you can change it and, and no one should be offended about it. Be offended if you've lost a flipping football match. Don't be offended because one of your best players has got a bottle of champagne. I remember it used to happen a lot with Adel Tarat they give him things and what they should have given him is they should have given him um, like bus vouchers and stuff because when we were losing the film he jumped on the, he went and got the bus home in his full QPR kit so you know a pass and things like that but there's, there's ways and means it's just it's just adjusting to what is society now which is we all come from different backgrounds we've all come from different religions and everything else but essentially we're all the flipping same I think that's what we're trying to get through in this podcast yeah. but um, what I'd like to say to you is like without patronising British Asians and get them involved in football how do we go forward so we don't have this conversation in 15 years time because that'd be brilliant if we didn't let's, let's be honest no, I think like, listen the fact that we are shows that we, we, we're striving towards change and I think I think it's just having an understanding and acknowledging that there is a little bit that we can do and that's what we can all do sometimes I think we sit there and we rely on podcasts clubs Premier League EFL FA what are they doing they don't 
we all can all do something. Mm. Look in the mirror. You can do something. And this is what I say to everyone. Like, stop waiting for people to do something. Do it yourself. And that just means something as simple as if you're at a club, just be helpful and kind to those that may be there for the first time. That's nothing to do with black, white, disabled, because everyone. Um, and, and it's the little touches that go a long way. My first, as I joined Aldershot Town last year as assistant manager. My first game at the EBB, I walked out and the fans in the East Bank uh, purchased and put up a massive Bangladeshi flag. No one asked them to do that. And for me, they don't realise what that meant. Because mm. how many Bangladeshi flags are up in the Premier League, EFL and in non-league? Probably zero in this country. There is one at the EBB. So every Aldershot fan, every away fan, they'll see that and go, what's all that about? And they don't do that. Every player at Aldershot that comes from a different country, so we've got a couple of Brazilians, we've got Moroccans, Algerians, we, they, they, they put the flags up. And, and that means so much to the players and myself. <laughs> yeah. and, and like, so that is literally one fan who's gone, oh, our assistant manager's uh, it's Bangladeshi. Oh, that's, that's quite different. Yeah, we wanted to feel welcome. What can we do? There you go. And, and, and they don't realise how powerful and how much mm. that means to me. Mm. So, like, we can all do something. And I think yeah. sometimes we, we, we think, well, what can we do? We want to do this big thing and great change. You know what? Sometimes it's the simplest things mm. as having a conversation, putting up a flag and just smiling. Literally, that is it. And I think if we all kind of look at ourselves and try to be better people, I think, we'll, I think we won't have these conversations in 15 years. But the fact that we are having them now, I wasn't having them 10 years ago. Yeah. Did you get, did you ever get the chance to play for Bangladesh national team? I mean, not, uh, not that they are a particularly great team. No, I did actually. So I was called up a few times, but um, I don't know if you've ever heard of John Steele, who is my manager at Dagenham. So uh, he, uh, we, the first time I got called up, they had a tournament in the Maldives right, and I had to stay oh. in the Maldives for 10 days. <laughs> Shocking. And he, said, <laughs> he said to me, um, he said, Annie, it's Christmas. We're one point behind Oxford in the national league. I think we can win a league. If I lose you, I'm going to lose you for four games while you're in the Maldives sunbathing. He goes, because obviously Bangladesh, it's not like, you know, Premier League, when England or Spain play, all the Premier League players have a day off. African <laughs> nations and the Asian uh, continents, if they're playing, it's still during the domestic uh, calendar. So you, you go and miss your games. And uh, so the first time I didn't go, uh, and we won the league that year, so I didn't go. But every single time after that, it always clashed. And it was a case of, all right, fly to Bangladesh for a game which will take me a day, play a game, come back the next day. And it was just, it was just really difficult. And I decided that I'd probably do it after I was 31, back end of my career. And then I broke my ankle plan for Barnet at um, Rotherham away. And uh, that kind of put bed to that. But you never know, one day I'll hopefully manage the, uh, manage the national side. So that's, uh, that'll, that'll be a, that's a good nice way. <clears throat> that'll be a nice way yeah. to sort of give back and um, maybe have that connection with my, uh, my fatherland. Nice. Do you know what's you know weird as well, though? And sorry, Kevin, I don't know if you've covered this before, but the alternative World Cup was in England a few years ago. Do you remember mm. that when the Punjab and stuff like that, there are countries that aren't recognised by FIFA? And I yeah. think that's a brilliant idea as well. I think if we get more things like that over here as well, that, that, that'd be brilliant. Were you aware of that at the time? Yeah, and I, I do a lot of work with the Punjab FA who played in the Kanifa mm. World <laughs> Cup. And like, what they don't realise is like, so that Punjab FA, I mean, they started a couple of years back now, put up a Twitter ca- account and got like 60,000 followers straight away because no, communities wow. all across the world, but they don't have a national country to support. Um, so they play in the, in the Kanifa tournament. But it just, this just shows like, you know, there are communities that 
are out there that are, are, are dying to support a team, dying to be part of something. And, um, and I think there's only a matter of time now before we have players of the jar playing in this country in, in big teams, Bangladeshis. I mean, Hamza Chowdhury now is, is mixed heritage like myself, playing for Leicester. So there's an hour, you know, for years, I just said the same three, four names. It was me, Zeshrim and Michael Chopra. Harpal yeah. Singh. And literally, it was the four names that you'd say for 20 years. But I'm so, I'm so glad that now we can start to talk about Yan Danda, Danny Bart and Hamza Chowdhury, among others. So we are seeing positive change. But I think with a community, it was crazy. So the Asian community held me as a hero when I was at West Ham. The minute I dropped into non-league and played for Sheffield Wednesday, Bristol Rovers and Dagenham, it was like, oh, well, we don't play for Premier League anymore. So yeah, it's, oh. it's forgotten about. But actually, for me, if you're playing at any level, you're being paid to play, playing in stadiums where people are watching a thousand, two thousand, three thousand fans. You are a, a role model, a pioneer for the community, whether you're Jewish, Asian, whoever. And I think we need to we need to make sure that these 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 people, their careers and what they're doing is amplified because they're role models in 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 a, in a world where there are very few. Yeah, that's fair point. Can we go back to your West Ham days? You won the FA Youth Cup for West Ham in '99. Yes. So that was some. That's a long time ago. I appreciate that. I, I would have been <laughs> by that point. So it's not much older than you. Um, you had some decent players on that side. Was that, who was in the side with you then? So that I mean, that's one of the reasons why I signed for West Ham. I, I actually had the choice to go to Manchester United, Arsenal, Liverpool City, and I chose to go to West Ham one because of my local team. But the players that we had. So that that particular Youth Cup final, we we won the final nine nil on aggregate, and I think it's the the highest scoring final ever. But if you look at the team we had, so we had um, Michael Carrick, Joe Cole, uh, Jermaine Defoe, uh, Leon Britton, Glenn Johnson, Stephen Bywater, myself, Richard Garcia. And it was just like the team. I mean, it was actually quite boring for me, actually, as a kid, because I used to play centre-half. And I remember Harry Redknapp and Tony Carr used to say to me, listen, just look after Joe and Carrick, Defoe and Leon Britton. If anyone kicks them, just you <laughs> kick them. Yeah, just let them play. Um, and, and anyways, you used to say there's piano pushers and piano players and I need a piano pusher and you are my piano pusher. And, um, but like we'd be, we'd be playing some games, it's four or five nil. And I'm like, can I go up front for a little while? Because literally as a defender with those sort of players in front of you, it was, it was actually scary. And um, there's even players that in that youth cup that I played with that I thought were really good that went on to have great careers, you know, like Izzy Erekman went to Swansea. I think Terrell Falls went to QPR. So we had, did. We, we had a load of players that were, were so great. And you know what is scary? Because at that particular time, West Ham had Rio Ferdinand in the first team, Frank Lampard in the first team that came through the, uh, the academy as well. And if you think, if you would have kept all those players at that club, <coughs> yeah, who, who, know, who, knows, who knows what would have happened? Who knows what about it? And throw Paolo Di Canio in there as well. God. Yeah. That's amazing. You think of that, you look at under-18 squads from the past, there's one or two players that make it. But from that side, you've named nine. <laughs> yeah. Went on and had good, good careers as well. So, you know, like Joe Cole and Carrick and Defoe playing for England, 100 times added together. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? From that one group of people. No, it was. And um, again, I look back at my career and you know, I think maybe I should have gone to a, you know, a, a late in Orient or something and maybe got into the first team at a young kid. But you, you can't ever, those memories and, and playing with those players, it's, yeah. it's not something you can ever recreate. And it's something that it's just a privilege to be able to sort of turn up on a, on a training day and just go and train with, with that lot. But then you add like 
West Ham, when I was in the first team at West Ham, we finished fifth in the Premier League and we had the likes of Paolo and <clears> Trevor Sinclair and Lampard and Rio. And it was just an unbelievable place. But actually, for me, it was the worst time because it was so hard to get into the team. We had Stuart Pearce, Ian Pearce, Javier Mar- It was just, it was so mm-hmm. difficult. And had I been there maybe two, three years later when they got relegated to the championship, maybe that was a better time for a younger player to, to be involved. So, well, football's all about timing. And, you know, it's, it is what it is. But just, just happy that I can look back and, and say that I've played with those sort of players and had the, uh, yeah, yeah. the experiences that I've had. That's amazing. But that's the thing. That, that, sorry, that's the thing about football, though, isn't it? I mean, you know yourself. I mean, you get there's the lad coming for us in the season called Kakai, and um, he, he, you know he's come in for a couple of games and shown, and he might he probably would get his contract extended now. He would have probably maybe been released, and you know it's just about giving these kids a chance, isn't it? And well, I mean that's that's where I feel so sorry for these these academies. There's so many players, so many can do things, there's so many get released, and because basically they've never been given a chance. Should they reduce the size of the academies to make it easier for players to, to have a clearer route to the first team. How do, we, how do we stop kids that are talented getting away from the game? I think a big thing about that, and I think it's, it's, we've, we've sort of felt casualty to that in this country, is like, as it's a global market now, so playing in, in a Premier League team is going to be nigh impossible because you're playing with the best in the world. I think we should utilise the loan system a little, little bit better. And I think it's about having just that quality control. You're right, because... I mean, the academies, the amount of players, there are so many players and they all live the dream. Listen, if you're turning up a QPR every day, you think you're going to play in the first team. But actually, statistically, the chances are still, still very, very low. I think mm. it's about having that aftercare and giving people the right um, responsibility, the right development as, as human beings as well. Because if they don't play and they don't make it, what are they going to do? Because, you know, they're not playing catch up in terms of a, a career in life. So it, and going back to the game, it can be really, really ruthless. And the scary thing is there are so many good, good players, talented players that for whatever, don't, for whatever reason don't get a chance and then they end up falling by the wayside, which is, which is yeah. quite um, demoralising. Um, but like I said, that's, that's why we love the game and anyone that is playing, I, you know, I'll take my hat off to him because to play at any level is, is very, very hard and to do it consistently over like a 10, 15-year period is amazing. Yeah. I mean, you've realised how good these players have to be. It's my... My eldest son, one of his friends, played for a couple of games at Luton about three or four years ago. My youngest son, who's 19, he was at school with Kwame Poku, who was playing at Colchester at the moment. And he was a yeah, star player, even though he'd be in the Premiership. He's the best player I've ever seen. And he's not first choice at Colchester. He's in the first team squad. You think, how good are these kids then if they're playing first team football in the Premiership at 18? If someone as good as Kwame Poku is just about making it at Colchester, there's an enormous gap. You just think, how good are you, do you have to be then? Clearly, brilliant, but... Yeah, yeah no, it's, it is, it's, it's, it's hard, but, you know, they do come along and I think the Championship and, and the Premier League now is, is a place where it's tough, it's tough, but it's great when you do see a few younger players come in and all of, all of a sudden explode onto the scene and the hardest yeah. thing is, is, is then keeping them, you know, because yeah. all of a sudden if they are 18, 19, 20 and they're playing for QPR doing well, chances are they're not going to be there very long. Yeah, that's a good thing about our academy. You look at some, some of the squads from last season, or eighteen man squad. We're looking at eight or nine academy players in our team. That's that's now. That's what we can afford. So that's absolutely fine. But they're good. But you, I think as a fan, you give academy players more of a chance. If you've got someone in, you've paid a hundred grand for someone for Bristol Rovers, and they come in and have the first couple of games, not great. You think, well, what's going on here? But someone comes from the youth team, and they're now eighteen or seventeen, and they have the first couple of games that aren't great. You think, well, okay, he'll be all right. It's the same performance. But I think as a football fan, you give that kid more of a chance. 
Most definitely. Well, we've, got a couple of, we've got a couple of lads at our place at Aldershot that I've brought in this year. Uh, Ethan Chislett is, is an example I can use because he's from Aldershot. He was right. at the academy, got released, <clears> brought him back. And the fans absolutely adore him because he's one of our own. <coughs> Reese Miller, another young... All these young boys that come through the academy. I think if, if clubs are smart, they can give their players from the academy a little bit more time because isn't it great to say that he's been here since the age of eight? Mm. And I think mm. if they go to the first team and they sustain a career even if it could, it could be a year or two that's like a product of our academy so it kind of shines a lot on, on what we are doing and how good we are yeah um and like i said you know any young player that comes in does well it becomes an asset to a club and then and then you lose them quite quickly so but that, that's the way of the world and that's football but it's about you know for me i always think about the untapped talent pool so we're talking about underrepresented groups like the Asian community, the LGBT community, the Jewish community. There are pockets of different faith groups that there are probably a few Lionel Messi's lying around these communities. But if we don't engage, we don't know who they are and there's no communication, no dialogue and no connection. We're never, ever going to have the opportunity to sort of sample any of these lads. Yeah. With that, our club captain was one of our, he's 24 now, we're not together. Maybe he's 25. He's been with us since he was, Seven or eight. It's our second season of the club. He joined us when we were in the Combined Counties League as a, as a kid. And he's wow. our club captain. So people love him. I mean, he's been out injured a lot and he's, he's a very good player. But he makes a mistake that causes a goal. He doesn't get any stick because it's him. Because he's, his parents are fans. His parents sit, you know, in the stands with, their, with other fans. He's just because he's one of us that he's one of our own thing. Yeah. You, just, he, you forgive so much. I think, I think clubs have got to look at that now, especially with what's going on in the world at the moment, where, you know, lack of money. If Arsenal are making people redundant, you know we're in trouble. It's this level playing field, especially the salary cap. Leagues one and two, that's going to make a huge difference. Isn't it? Maybe not this season, but the next couple of seasons where academy players will be brought through. Because let's be fair, they're cheaper. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. The salary cap um, is interesting as well. I'd like to be anywhere near that, that the, the, the ceilings of that, that salary cap. But for <laughs> us, like, we're, we're a club that... Because we haven't got the resources, Aldershot, for example, we have to take gambles. We have to develop. And you know what? I love that about us because that's why I'm a football coach and that's what I love mm. doing. Yeah. Um, I think it'd be, it'd be not easy. I don't want to discredit anyone that does it. But if you're a manager, you know one of those managers that go to a Premier League and they say, right, you've got an you know, open checkbook. <clears> you go yeah. and buy the best players. But there's something special about unearthing a, a, a rough diamond. Yeah. I think that's like anything. Mm. I was listening to, I'm not a big F1 fan. I don't even understand it. I'm not into cars. But they were saying about it's not really an even playing field now because it all depends on the car and the money they put into <clears> it. And you've got cars that are 10 times better on the cars and everything else. And I think it is... I mean, you'd love to take someone from the Premiership and stick them into all the shot. No disrespect, obviously, you know what I'm saying. Or stick them into the Irish League or something and see the horror on their faces when the, you know, the players turn up in like a, the way they do and they have to coach them. Because I think that's the... The trouble is it's kind of... Coaching's lost. It's where we were. You know, it's, it's kind of like the, the art of it's not appreciated. People aren't getting the chance to develop players. And if you don't get success quickly enough, you're at the door quicker than you've got in the door. And yeah. I think especially non-league clubs and, and now with COVID and everything else, and, and League One, League Two, we've got to be patient with, with young coaches. We've got to get, because in 20 years' time, people are going to be too scared to take that role because of the responsibility that goes with it. Yeah. Now, somebody else, I was talking to said, do you think Pep Guardiola could get Wrexham out of the conference at the National nope. Probably not. Not without not without billions behind him. With that with that squad, not paying not paying money for a player in eleven years, you get that team with your brilliant coaching and your innovative ideas and playing your fullbacks inverted and that kind of stuff. Great. 
take Wrexham into the, into the Football League, he'd struggle. Genuinely think he'd struggle. I'm not, I'm not being rude to Wrexham, but I'm just saying Wrexham have been in non-league now for, what, 10 years, thinking they'd go straight back up again. It's a really hard yes. thing to do. I, I think it'd be a really tough job for, for Guardiola or Klopp to take Wrexham out or Yeovil. No, they've got the, the playoffs, but... It's, it's, yeah, no, I think I think it's the same as um, it's the same as players as well. I mean, mm. I've played with players that we've signed from other teams or that have come through the academy that have everyone knows all the fans in the club know this player has got so much ability, but whatever yeah. reason it's not quite working, they go. Actually, maybe come come out the side. Let's work on some of these uh, weaknesses. Let's mm. work on what you need to do better. And actually, if you mm. gave a player a little bit of that, you know, you might not have a Kevin De Bruyne that leaves Chelsea goes to Wolfsburg and then goes to Man City and becomes probably, in my opinion, one of the best players in the world. Yeah. You know, Salah, that leaves Chelsea to go. You know, and I bet at QPR and AFC Women, you probably have players where you go, there's just something about this kid which is not quite happening. Yeah. You know, sometimes you don't have to go, right, off you go. Sometimes it's about, okay, well, let's try something different. Let's maybe have a little bit more patience. And, but yeah, football is quite scary at the minute because there's, 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 very, there's a lot of short-termism and I think that is sometimes what plays into this whole new way of, of doing things but yeah that's have to deal with it there you go well, we've, we've got we've, we've got sorry Kevin we've got Eze who's a prime example of what you just said there yeah um, didn't do it at Tottenham got released by Millwall <clears> and yet the kid just oozes talent but maybe maybe it's just clicked one day I don't know but he, he always must have had that talent you know what I mean he can yeah. just we've got one yeah. day and be, but it's what yeah. it's what managers see in you it's what coaches see in you but then I think the game needs to, especially after COVID, just learn a wee bit of patience, a wee bit of time and give managers, coaches and players time because these revolving doors of clubs, even at League One, League Two, um, National League levels, it's ridiculous. On one, No one's getting a chance and that yeah. worries me. Yeah. Again, you look at academies of, let's say, Chelsea, you get their under-18. Please don't. No, I'm sorry. The under-18 side is more, well, it's dominated by foreign players. So these foreign kids are being picked up. From Bulgaria or from in, you know, from the states, and we we played them. Our under 18s played them in the Youth Cup in 2016, I think it was. Um, and they had Tamori and Abraham in that side, so they had a good. So they had some two or three good midfield players. They had Jay De Silva, I think it's now Bristol City. They had an American kid called Kyle Scott, who's absolutely top quality. Let him go. There's, I think there's four still playing. It's extraordinary. Yeah. But, they, but but they were mostly foreign players. So if you're if you're 17 years or 16 or 14 years old. And you get scouted by Chelsea and Arsenal and Dagenham. Where are you going to go? You really should go to Dagenham, shouldn't you? Because you're likely to play in the first team and then maybe get spotted. You go to Chelsea or Arsenal, you you, the chance of you playing in the first team is remote, isn't it? Yeah, but Kevin, you don't realise, and some of the will realise more than I, what these clubs offer these parents. And these kids mm. could sometimes be from quite really yeah. humble <clears> places, <throat> like myself from a council state or whatever. And what Chelsea and that offer these players, and then when they don't make it, they just get rid of them psychologically yeah. for a family that's devastating. You, suddenly, yeah. you, you, you're held in high esteem. You're given this, you're given that, you're given oh, the, the, the joy. As soon as it looks like you're not going to make it, out you go. And that's got to be looked at big time by the Football League as well and the FA. That's <coughs> got to stop because these kids are not, it's not good for them. It really isn't other families because they're given everything and then it's all taken away the blink of an eye. Well, it's the same with Greyhound, isn't it? <laughs> so this is a good link. So when greyhounds come to end their career, they often the greyhounds are just left on the side of a road because they've 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 done their racing and they don't want them anymore. So they just abandon them. I think if the young footballers, it's very similar. They just get abandoned, lit- not literally on the, on the wayside, but you know. Yeah, I think it's psychological. 
the psychological effects of that. I mean, I've got good, good friends that were with me at West Ham and we had like such a great time, but for whatever reason, it didn't work out for them. They go on trial and they just think, you know what, I've left West Ham. I'll easily go to Southend or Leighton or in AFC Wimbledon. Mm. They'd love to have me. Well, you know, you won't because playing men's football and, and youth team football is, is totally different. And all of a sudden they don't go there. It's like, well, what am I going to do now? And it, it can be so, it can be so damaging. And uh, yeah. Now then, and even at the end of your career, it's, it, it is tough and something that we all need to be aware of and, and, and there needs to definitely be more support around that. Yeah, no, you're right. Well, we've come to the end of our time, am I? You've, you've given us far more time than we originally had. <laughs> no we're problem. Still recording. Yeah, so, we're still recording. Kev, Kevin talks too much. It's not like me, Shia Matarin. <laughs> I do apologise. No, it's, it's been a pleasure, lads. It's been no, an absolute pleasure. Cheers, well, good luck. Um, good luck to all the shop. Whenever next season is for, for, the, for the National League, let's hope it's, you know... Have you got a start date? In, I think we're starting on October the 3rd, so sooner rather than later. But um, it would be great to, to get back up and um, get back up and running and playing in the National League. It's a tough, tough league this year, but um, listen, uh, as long as we progress and, um, and, and I love this and I love doing what I do, so it's going to be fun. Well, the best luck. luck to you, fellow. It's a good wee club, that. And yeah. I don't mean that, but don't patronise them because um, <clears throat> a lot of ex-QPR done there. Wardle was done there for years. So, um, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> good, good club and good support and one club that came back from, from death as well. So, good luck next season. Cheers, yeah. thank, thank you. Cheers, Thanks Cheers, big man. Cheers, Thank you, bye-bye. Cheers. Thanks, mate, bye. Well, Kevin, I, okay. you... I think I, I'm, I'm happy that we had Amar on, on the programme. That's one of the best Great. guests we've had on. Yes, straight me. So I love that. We're still recording, by the way, so people will be hearing us. It's fine. I like, I like this bit. This is the, the post, you know, the you know what I liked out of that is it. You know, when you talk to someone and it gives you school for thought, you kind of think, "I've yeah. thought of that." <clears throat> yeah, yeah. At least six things. I'm going to listen back to this <clears throat> podcast just to <clears throat> make sure they're missing. That he said was amazing. I liked his attitude because I'm a bit like that. Of you know, if people don't like you, just stand in front of them and be feisty about it and, and face it up and and win them over. That takes a lot. of because I, I say the majority of people would not want to do that. They would want to go somewhere where they're going to be welcomed and feel mm. where and whilst the opposite is like, no, you will make me feel welcome. And if you don't make me feel welcome, I don't care. I think I, I believe I genuinely think he doesn't care, but he's obviously he's played at clubs where he's been signed because he's a good player or he's, they needed a tough tackling centre-half. And that's, that's why they signed him. They've not signed him because he's, he's Asian. It's entirely, no. entirely, in the nicest possible sense, when he's, when he's joined clubs, it's his race or his, his, his cultural background is entirely irrelevant, as it should be. You sign him because he's a good player. I do love that story about um, Bradford, though. The, the, it? <clears throat> it's just, right. I mean, you know, I, you know we're, we're, we're kind of a football, you know, we're kind of having all kinds of things that are brilliant incentives and that, though, you know, we're obviously with the Rainbow Laces and... Yeah. I know fans have got, listen, I'm not stupid. I, I hear things in terrors. I know, like I said, down while, you know, there's a lot of things that people just say, you know, it's just tick boxing. But if it brings people into the game and makes people feel welcome, I'm happy to have everyone involved in football because it's not just for me. It's not just for you. It's not just for other people. It should be for everyone. It doesn't yeah. matter who you are or what you are. I know it's a very happy way of looking at it, but, no, but it's, come it's, on. It's the people's game, isn't it? Isn't that the idea? It's supposed to be. Supposed oh, to be. Talking yeah. of which, yeah. before we go, um, have you been following the Wigan and Charlton's debacles? Because it's it's actually making me really angry. I I don't understand the I don't understand a number of things. I don't understand how Wigan were allowed to be purchased by someone whose sole purpose was to put it in administration because that's clearly Crazy. what happened. 
So I, I understand that Wigan therefore should be deducted points, but I don't see why they were deducted points this season when Sheffield Wednesday were not being deducted points this season when they completely on purpose illegally sold their own ground to themselves. You can't do that. So it looks like Derby have done the same thing, but that, that appears to be more complicated. Yeah. If Sheffield Wednesday are up front, yep, yeah, okay, we, we, we bought our own ground to save our skins. So they, all, they will likely get a 12-point deduction at the start of next season. But I don't understand. So, okay, so, okay, Wigan administration, that's 12 points. Regardless of the story, why? what's the difference between Wigan having their points deducted now and relegating them and Sheffield Wednesday having their points deducted next season? Is it anything um, to do with the fact that Sheffield Wednesday are, in vertical a much bigger club? I would like to say no, but I think most definitely yes. And the Football League and the FA know they're going to get a lot more angry people knocking on the door and yeah. on Twitter than Pearl I mean, yeah. Wigan. And, yeah. that's, and that's pathetic and sad. In the same way, you know, I've been following the, the takeover, non-takeover, takeover again of Charlton. And you just think, you know, and I keep saying this, I just wonder if the, the Football League and the FA let these people in the football, whoever signed those declarations saying these guys are fit for purpose or yeah. females are fit for purpose, whatever, also lose their job as some people lose their clubs. I wonder mm-hmm. how many will actually then get in. Because the amount of shysters that get into these football clubs now is, is it's not even funny. It's actually scandalous. The Charlton thing is, I'm not, I, I'm, when I say a joke, I don't mean it in a humorous way. I'm not laughing. No. And obviously having had my club removed from me and moved 70-something miles up the motorway, um, I think Charlton fans understand what, you know, what that might be like. But the fact that they were owned by Du Chatelet, who's only reason for buying that club was so he could sell the land and build flats on it and make vast amounts of money, which is what he's done in other parts of the country, in other parts of the world, in Belgium. I, I used, when I worked in Belgium quite a bit, I worked in a, um, a it was like a business club, and his, his photograph was on the wall as one of the uh, oh, right. famous Belgian businessmen. And I went back about a year after he was first there, and he's, there was now a blank space. Someone had actually removed it. <clears throat> which is not interesting, but a standard Liège fan had removed it, because basically they were trying to sell them down the, down the river as well. So then he then sells the Somebody else comes in, buys the club for supposedly a pound, puts this Matt Southall guy in charge, and then and there's legal action between the bloke who owns the club and then this, this Matt Southall character, who's got a number of interesting, I think interesting in inverted commas, business interests. Um, it's just ridiculous. And I know I'm not, yeah, I am going to blow out being fan owned means you don't get any of that because we well, this is what's coming on to we do we can't, that won't happen there's lots of things that could happen we could get relegated back to the conference south fine and then a lot of people would say, a lot of people would say i'd rather be fan owned back in non-league than owned by someone like that in the premier league and i think that's again it's very hard to argue against that but it's, it, it that, worries me greatly because hmm. i haven't said it nearly happened to qpr and everything else years and years and years ago at a different yeah. level is these checks I wonder what they are Kevin I mean <coughs> they walk in there and the FA go have you had any field businesses yes loads okay yeah. let's not tell anyone because that's really naughty okay yeah. so you're forgiven for that have you put anyone into bankruptcy yeah loads oh like Ian um, but never mind those are the keys off you go run it into the ground do what you want because the, the interviews must be ridiculous because the, the, the guy you mentioned in Belgium, all his whole purpose was to try and make as much money as he could by selling yeah. the best assets yeah. and filling it full of bang average players who were never going to do anything mm-hmm. or amount to anything. But the club just goes into full decay and like a berry. And they're out there. And the trouble is, they're 
more clubs than we want to realise. <clears throat> yes. Especially and if the thing about Wigan's true as well, the guy had gambled on them going down, which I hope it isn't, then surely God, whoever lets these people in these clubs have got a fall on their sword as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, Wigan fans, with the, obviously when Dave Whelan and, and then his grandson owned the club, they were in safe hands, weren't they? Whatever people think of them, they're mm. safe hands. The Wigan people, they sell out in the hope this is going to be someone good and this is going to be someone who can take them back up the Premier League or at least sort of stabilise them because they're bouncing between League One and the Championship. And it's someone even worse. I mean, I just, I just don't understand how that guy got the job. But you're describing about redundant, um, bankruptcy. You're actually describing the president of the USA as well at the same time. He managed to get the job, didn't he? Despite all the charges against him. But hey, um, I'm not talking about that now. I like, I like the way you did that. That was a really, really, really good link. I like, and I kind of like that. It's like when people say, what well, a business money is when you started off with five billion and ended up with three billion. I'm not the greatest mathematician in the world, yeah, but no. I'm thinking that's not great. But there you go. Um, no, that's my favourite Trump fact, that when his father gave him all that money in 1970, if he'd invested it in an, a high-interest bank account and then done nothing, he'd have more money than he has now. So that does not mean he's a good businessman, does it? If, he's le- if he has less money than he started out with. In no, my, that's not a good businessman. That's another person you've got more hair than. Yes, and it's all mine. It's all human hair attached to my actual head. Look. <laughs> <laughs> but if, it's, if there is any Charlton and Wigan fans <clears throat> listening to this who would like to come yeah. on and, and, and discuss <clears throat> what's going on, and, and I think Paul Mortimer did a brilliant job with Charlton a few weeks ago when he he, he was, well, say a few months ago now. God, this lockdown mm. makes everything seem like it was yesterday. <laughs> um, and it just makes you think. I feel sad because at the end of the day, you know, we have a rivalries and stuff. But I don't want to see any club bite the dust. No. Um, no. And you know what it's like. And I've I've almost, you know, almost yeah. had it happen to my club. And it's, but there's got to be an awful lot more. And it's it's got to be. I'm not saying take it back to the ownership of this local estate agent or the local butcher or, or whatever. But just this way of, of having more fans involvement and maybe fans being involved in these meetings with these owners as well yeah. might not be a bad shout. <laughs> There's got to be a better way we're doing it than what we're doing it now because how we're doing it is completely farcical, wrong. And in the end of the day, people are losing their livelihoods and more importantly, the community's over it. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's absolutely bonkers. But anyway, we've come to the end of episode 15 of Time Under Number Sauce Juice. Thank you, Paul. Thank you to Anwar. No, thank you, Kevin. So you can get hold of Anwar uh, via the Football Supporters Association. It was called the Football Supporters Federation but it merged with Fans Direct, so now it's the Football Supporters Association. Um, go and have a look up their work. They do a lot of good stuff, not just in sort of you know, uh, cultural backgrounds and diversity. They do a lot of good stuff, but obviously Anwar is in charge of diversity and campaigns. If you have ideas and you think maybe you could offer the FSA some guidance or some any of it, your experience and knowledge, I'm sure they'd be very interested in finding out. Well, you can come through us, Kevin at sausagepodcast.org, Paul at sausagepodcast.org, and then we can pass stuff on if you'd rather do it that way. So thank you for your time. Next episode will be hopefully in a couple of weeks' time with another guest. And then once the season gets going in mid-September, we'll start having bands on and guests. And of course, we have the problem we had bands recording football songs for us because bands can't get together. So that's one of the reasons we've done that. But we will be having some... Are your dog's back. Excellent. That's, that's Paul's, Paul's Always... <laughs> Do you know what? He's not that barky, but it's every time I do this podcast or the QPR yeah. one, he seems to go into overdraft. Overdraft? Overdrive. That's, that's overdraft. Let's talk about overdrafts again. Don't, don't talk to me about 40% rises by oh. the banks. Anyway, that's no, a story anyway. all day. Kevin, that was a brilliant guest and a, br- and a brilliant podcast, and well done for putting that together, big man. Well, uh, thank you. I enjoyed that. I'm pleasing myself. Nice one. Cheers, Paul. Thank you for listening, and you'll, you'll catch us again very soon. Thanks.